0: In the church calendar, Matthew 2 really has to do double duty. It's obviously a Christmas passage because it records Christ's birth and the events surrounding it. But it also belongs to Epiphany since it records events that begin to manifest who Jesus is even early in his life. Uh, Last week we saw in Luke chapter 2 how events at the beginning of Jesus' life foreshadow what is to come at the end. So for example, we looked at his circumcision on the eighth day of his life. It's really a preview of Calvary. It's been called the Christmas Cross. Baby Jesus is already shedding his blood. The trajectory of his life's work is already established in his circumcision the lawgiver becomes the law keeper the one born of a woman comes under the law in order to redeem us from the curse of the law the judge comes under judgement god took on flesh precisely so he could be cut so he could bleed and so, when Jesus' flesh is cut on the eighth day, it points ahead to when he will cut off the reign of the flesh through his bloodshed at the cross. His circumcision is a little Calvary, it is a preview of Calvary, a preview of what is to come. Likewise, in Luke chapter 2, when there is singing and rejoicing over Jesus in the temple, it foreshadows the rejoicing and singing over the risen Jesus that will take place at the end of the gospel. So you have this rejoicing and singing in the temple over baby Jesus at the beginning. That points ahead. You're going to have rejoicing and singing over the risen Jesus in the temple at the end. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon says Jesus came to be a light to the Gentiles. In Luke 24, Jesus commissions his disciples to go preach the gospel to all nations. That is to take the light to the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit as he comes into the temple to witness to who Jesus is. In Luke 24, Jesus promises his disciples that the Spirit will come upon them with power so they can be his witnesses going out from the temple. There's this match between the way the gospel begins and the way it ends. all kinds of links between the beginning of Luke and the end. Well, Matthew's gospel follows the same He records a very different set of events early in Jesus' life, but they also serve as a preview of what is to come. So, Matthew chapter 2 gives us four episodes in the life of Jesus, each one full of foreshadowing. I'll call these four episodes the visit, the exodus, the slaughter, and the settlement. And each one of these points to what is to come, they set the trajectory. For Jesus' mission, Jesus' ministry. So first, the visit. The visit of the Magi. These are Gentiles, probably from Babylon. They were kings, or at least members of a royal court. Since the prophet Daniel, many centuries before, had been a high-ranking official in Babylon, a kind of Magi himself it's possible that these Magi are Daniel's spiritual descendants who kept his teaching alive and who knew to look for a Messiah that God would send to Israel. Perhaps they even knew the prophecy of a Messianic star from the book of Numbers. And so they follow this star when it appears to Israel. Uh, Obviously, this is no ordinary star because we find in Matthew's account it can come to stand over a particular house. It is some kind of supernatural phenomenon. In fact, I think it is best understood as a manifestation of the glory cloud. The glory cloud that we know from the Hebrew scriptures. The Magi follow this star the same way the Israelites once followed the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness. Indeed, I would say that same glory appeared to the shepherds on the same night, in that same night sky in Luke chapter 2, to announce the birth of Jesus to them as well. So this glory cloud, this manifestation of God's glory in the sky, this pillar of glory, leads the magi, these Gentiles, to the place where Jesus is, It also leads the shepherds to the place where Jesus is. So these are Gentile rulers who have come to worship Jesus. And we find in this chapter, these Gentiles have come to worship, these Gentile rulers have come to worship Jesus at the very moment the Jewish ruler, Herod, is going to attack him. Now, there is precedent for Gentile royalty coming to Israel to honor the king of God's covenant people. Think about... uh, the. Book of 1 Kings. Think about the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon's court to pay him homage. You've got something similar going on here. Further, this passage clearly fulfills Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 and the first half of Matthew 2 just fit together like a hand in a glove, like prophecy and fulfillment. There is prophetic precedent for what the Magi prophetic promises that have been made that are now coming to fulfillment. Isaiah's prophecy, we read Isaiah 60 this morning. Isaiah's prophecy describes a glory arising over the Gentiles. It says the Gentiles shall come to your light, to the brightness of your rising. They will follow this glory light to God's Messiah, to God's promised King. The Magi brought gifts. This is also prophesied in Isaiah 60. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you, Isaiah prophesied. They bring gold and incense. Those are the particular gifts that are mentioned in Isaiah 60. They will proclaim the praises of the Lord, Isaiah 60 says. Basically, what Isaiah 60 describes is exactly what the Magi do when they come and prostrate themselves before the newborn king. Now, there are three gifts, actually, that uh, Matthew mentions for us. And these gifts obviously have symbolic value. They're expensive gifts. They're costly gifts. Uh, We sang about these gifts in that hymn, Brightest and Best, this morning. Uh, But they have symbolic value, clearly. Now, the exact meaning, the exact symbolic meaning, is debated. So I'll tell you here what I think. Certainly, these are gifts taken all together. These are gifts designed to outfit the king for his mission. Further, there are gifts to outfit the new temple, to dress the new temple up as it were, in glory. Gold is associated with kingship, obviously, but it's also associated with the temple. It is a sign of divine glory, especially as God glorifies his people. Uh, it's really interesting, in the temple, uh, and before that, the tabernacle, there was a lot of wood Various types of wood that would then be covered in gold. See so this gold-covered wood. Well, that's clearly symbolic. Wood representing God's people. God's people throughout the Bible are described as different types of trees. And the goal then is God glorifying his people, God covering us in glory. You've got wood, people covered in gold. That's glory. That's what's happening with Jesus here. He's being glorified. Uh, incense. Incense was used in worship at the temple as well, symbolizing prayer. The incense would go up. Uh, a column of incense would arise from earth going up to the heavens. That column of incense symbolically creating a link between earth and heaven, symbolizing communion between God and his worshippers. That God and his, and his worshipers are being heaven and earth are being joined through that column of incense as it arises. Then you've got myrrh. Myrrh, it's interesting how how myrrh shows up elsewhere in scripture. Myrrh is mixed with the wine given to Jesus to drink as he's hanging on the cross. Uh, Myrrh is one of the spices used as he's wrapped uh, for burial, as his body is wrapped for burial. But it's also got connections, not just with death, but also with marriage. The most predominant place where you find myrrh in the Bible is actually Psalm of Solomon, where the bride and the groom both have myrrh. In Psalm 45, which is a wedding liturgy, Uh, the king has myrrh. So myrrh is marital. So all of these gifts together are prophetic. They point to the union of the Messiah with his people. They show us Jesus has come to be the bridegroom. He's come to be the hero for his bride, to fight for her, to rescue her, to to bring her home with him. The wise men here, by bringing these gifts, they're not throwing a baby shower. They're throwing a wedding shower. That's really what this is about. It's pointing to the union of Christ with his church, the marital union of Christ with his people. But the very fact that these are Gentiles who are coming to worship the Jewish Messiah is also significant. In fact, I think it's significant. They're Babylonians. Many years before the 6th century BC, it was Babylonians who sacked the temple in Jerusalem. And what did they take from the temple? Well, you guessed them. They take from the temple gold, frankincense, and myrrh among other treasures. Isaiah 60 verse 10 prophesies that one day the Gentiles will bring treasures back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls that were torn down. Of course, you've got an initial fulfillment of this in what Nehemiah and Ezra do as they are given plunder from the Gentiles to rebuild the walls of the city and the temple that prefigures this. But here you have Babylonians, these magi, in a sense making restitution for what was taken, bringing back the very gifts that had been taken from the temple. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is also a sign that the new Israel Jesus is forming will include Gentiles. Jesus has come, he has to be Israel's Messiah, but he's come to bring blessing as God promised Abraham to all the families of the earth. He's going to unite all the different branches of the human family. And indeed, you could say, this is the first fruits of the Gentile nations who will bring their treasures and their gifts and their cultural achievements into Christ's kingdom. It's something the Old Testament prophesied and promised. It's something the New Testament refers to again and again. Revelation 21, to give you another example of this, Revelation 21, echoing Isaiah 60, says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, people will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Think about this. What is this glory that the kings will bring into the kingdom of God? What is this glory that the people of the nations will bring into the kingdom of Christ? I think you can say it is nothing less than the accumulated work of of their culture, the accumulated achievements of their culture, all that the peoples of the world have produced that is good and true and beautiful, their art, their literature, their music, their architecture, and on and on. All of these glories developed by each people group throughout the earth will ultimately be brought to Christ and offered to Him in the same way these magi offer their gifts. To Jesus. They bring their gifts to Jesus. They bring their gifts into the kingdom of Christ. This is what all the kings and nations of the world will do. They will bring all that is good and true and beautiful in their culture into the kingdom of Christ. And while this certainly happens in history in some sense as the nations are discipled as you and as other believers like you offer the fruits of their labors to Christ, it especially happens at the last day. At the last day of the resurrection, God will weave all of our cultural achievements into his final new creation. This is how Christopher Wright puts it. He says, all that has enriched and honored the life of all nations and all of history will be brought in to enrich the new creation. The new creation will not be a blank page as if God will simply crumple up the whole of human historical life in this creation and toss it into the cosmic bin and then hand us a new sheet to start all over again. Now, the creation will start, the new creation will start with the unimaginable reservoir of all that human civilization has accomplished in the old creation. But purged, cleansed, disinfected, sanctified, and blessed. And we will have eternity to enjoy it and to build on it in ways we cannot dream of now as we will exercise the powers of creativity of our redeemed humanity. He goes on, he says, think of the prospect. All human culture, language, literature, art, music, science, business, sport, technological achievement, actual and potential, all available to us. All of it with the poison of evil and sin sucked out of it forever. All of it glorifying God. All of it under his loving and approving smile. All of it for us to enjoy with God and indeed being enjoyed by God and all eternity for us to explore it, understand it, appreciate it, and expand it. What the wise men do, what the Magi do in bringing their gifts to Jesus, gifts that took human effort to obtain, in bringing those gifts to Jesus, it's a picture of really what all of history is about. The wise men bringing gifts not only foreshadows what will happen in history, but especially at the end of history. And what they do with their treasures is a picture of what you will do with your treasures. All of your life's accomplishments at the last day will be gathered up and offered to Jesus. And in some way woven into the glory of his final new creation. Woven into the fabric of his new creation. That's the picture you have here. It was promised by Isaiah. Isaiah said the kings will bring their treasures in. Revelation says it will happen too. The kings and the peoples of the world will bring their treasures in. Here you see it happen.
1: Well, Herod, of course, hears all of this.
0: The wise men come to him. And they say, We want to go to the king of the Jews. Where is he going? Where was he to be born? Uh, Herod does not like any of this. Herod was very much triggered by when the Magi speak of the king of the Jews being born, because in his mind, he's the king of the Jews. And so here you have the second episode, Herod's jealousy, Herod's hatred, leading to the slaughter of the innocents. Herod does not want a rival. In the Harry Potter series, just as Voldemort and Harry Potter cannot coexist, so Herod and Jesus cannot coexist. Harry is attacked as a baby, but survives. He becomes the boy who lived, and so it is with Jesus. He will survive Herod's attack. He will be the boy who lived. Herod decides that all the baby boys in Bethlehem must die. Just to be on the safe side, he tells his soldiers, his troops, to go destroy all the babies under two years old. Now, this is not the first time in history Jewish baby boys have come under attack. In fact, it's really clear. This is recapitulating. It's reenacting what Pharaoh did in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh was threatened. His rule was threatened by the growing Israelite nation, this nation within his nation, this nation of slaves, the Israelites within Egypt. They were growing too strong, too powerful. And so he sought to destroy their baby boys. But of course, we know Moses escaped. Moses became the boy who lived. And so Jesus as another Moses, he will escape as well. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, saw those Israelite boys as a potential threat to his reign. If these boys grow up to be men, and they decide they don't like being slaves, then they can challenge and overthrow Pharaoh's rule. He cannot have that, so he must kill them in their infancy. Here it's more specific. Herod is not threatened by baby boys in general, but by this one baby boy in particular. It's Jesus Herod wants to kill. Even if he's got to kill a bunch of other boys trying to get to Jesus, that's what he's after. He's after Jesus. And that brings us really to the third episode, really the second and third episodes. You can't really separate them too much. This is the Exodus. But it's an Exodus with a twist. See, the Magi, they had a kind of exodus from Babylon to Bethlehem, from their Gentile region to Israel. But now Jesus and his family will have an exodus. Their exodus will take them from Bethlehem to Egypt. It's very interesting. It's almost like an exodus, but it's in reverse. It raises a question how can you have an exodus out of the land of Israel? Israel is always the destination when there's an exodus. But it doesn't seem to be that way here. It's not, that's not the case this time. This is different. Look at how Matthew uses the prophecy that he cites. It's coming to fulfillment here from Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Normally you would expect that verse to be placed at the point where they leave Egypt and start heading back to Israel. Instead it's placed when they leave Israel. We expect it to come out of the, at the end of the story, at the end of the journey, when they're leaving Egypt. Instead, it comes at the beginning, when they leave Israel. This is not Matthew being sloppy. This is by design. Matthew is telegraphing a really important point to us. See, Herod, the ruler in Israel, has become another Pharaoh, seeking to wipe out the baby boys, just like Pharaoh did. That means the land of Israel has become another Egypt. That's how unfaithful Israel has become. And this fits with other ironic reversals in the story. I've already mentioned this. Gentiles worshipping the Jewish Messiah, while the Jews reject and even seek to kill the one God has sent them. It seems everything's being reversed. It's like the first shall be last and last first. That's how it looks in this story. Herod's attempt to kill Jesus is a sign of things to come. I talked about this last week. Now, eight-day-old baby Jesus, when he's circumcised, that's foreshadowing the cross. The bloodletting that will happen at Calvary is being foreshadowed. Well, here you've got the same kind of foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing the cross. The shadow of the cross is falling over baby Jesus. This Herod seeks to kill Jesus at the beginning of Matthew. At the end of Matthew, another Herod will play a role in actually crucifying Jesus. It's a preview of what is to come. Well, God gives Joseph a dream, just like Joseph in the book of Genesis had dreams. So another Joseph has a revelatory dream here. And in obedience to the dream God has given to him, the vision God has given to him, he leads his family to safety, probably using the gifts the Magi brought to finance the trip down to Egypt. You know, we tend to focus so much on Mary and her faithfulness, and of course it is commendable uh, Mary's role in taking on uh, this calling of giving birth to the Christ child, recognizing that would even bring probably some kind of stigma, the fact that she would be pregnant, Mary and all of that that she had to deal with. We saw Simeon last week talking about how a sword would pierce her own soul. Mary was faithful in the midst of all of that. Well, we also should give props to Joseph because he is a faithful husband and father. A good man who protected his own. Who did what he needed to do to protect his family. While well, Matthew's focus is obviously on Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, he does record for us the aftermath of the slaughter in Bethlehem. And this is very interesting that Matthew does this. He could have just moved on. He could have said here it made this free Jesus escapes, but no, he lingers over Bethlehem and what happens there, and he connects this. Of course, we've already seen Bethlehem. Uh, earlier in the chapter, connected with a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, that this is where Messiah would be born. Now we get a prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31 that Matthew connects with this event when the baby boys are slaughtered in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31, the part Matthew quotes, a voice was heard in Ramah, that's a little village right outside of Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament, you know Rachel actually lives in the book of Genesis. Jeremiah happens much, much later, but describes Rachel weeping over her children. What's happening? Well, let me spell this out for you again, connect some dots here. Rachel was Jacob's wife. If Jacob is a father of Israel, Rachel was a mother of Israel. Why does Matthew use this passage from Jeremiah 31? Well, Bethlehem is not only the place where Jesus would be born. That's the main thing we think of as Jesus being born there. But Bethlehem has a long history and a very checkered history. Bethlehem is the place where Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And she was buried there. So it's where Rachel dies, giving birth. That's where she's buried. Bethlehem, in fact, had been a place where incredible tragedy and hardship and apostasy had taken place again and again in history. It was a little town, as Micah's passage already quoted in Matthew chapter 2 indicates, but it was a little town of great significance because it keeps popping up in different ways in Israel's history. It features prominently in two very horrific stories at the end of the book of Judges involving rape, murder, and idolatry, and civil war. In the book of Ruth, it's hit with a famine, and yes, Boaz shines out in that story, a faithful man in Bethlehem, but you get the sense that the town as a whole has been judged by God, and that's why this famine has come. Bethlehem is a place of hope amidst brokenness, a place whose history reminds us that we need redeeming But also that a Redeemer is coming. It's the place where some of the most scandalous and wretched and terrible events in Israel's history had taken place. But it's also the place where God said, the Messiah will be born. Micah 5 tells us the Messiah would hail from Bethlehem. And Matthew quotes that, but it's interesting. If you go back and you read that... Passage that Matthew quotes from Micah 5 in its wider context, it's really interesting. It describes the town of Bethlehem under siege. Think about Herod's attack when the baby boys, there would have felt like the town was under siege. And when the Messiah goes down from Bethlehem in Micah 5, he does so as a mighty champion who will save his people. So while Bethlehem's history is tragic, and the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2 is part of that history of tragedy in this town, there is also a hope. Because this is where the deliverer will come from. The place that seems most hopeless is the place from which hope will arise. Now, what about this slaughter of these babies? And why does Matthew cite Jeremiah 31 that makes reference to Rachel weeping over her children and refusing to be comforted? Obviously, in Jeremiah 31, the use of Rachel there is figurative. Rachel's been dead a long time by the time Jeremiah writes this. What is Jeremiah writing? Well, he's writing about the exile. Rachel is weeping from the grave over her descendants who are being enslaved and exiled by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. A time when it seemed that the people of Israel and Judah were bereft of all hope. That's why Rachel is weeping. It seems that her people, her descendants, had no hope at all. So as a mother, she weeps from the grave over her descendants, their sin, their apostasy, but also the punishment, the judgment, the exile coming upon them, all the hardship and the suffering they're having to endure. But again, if you go back and you read, just as you've got to go back and read Micah 5, the whole thing, go back and read Jeremiah 31. The Lord goes on to say, in the midst of Rachel's weeping, stop weeping. Stop your tears, for you will be rewarded. Your children shall return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their own land. That's a few verses later, Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17. Of course, later in that same chapter goes on, God makes a promise of a new covenant that won't be like the old covenant that was broken. There's going to be a new covenant God makes with His people. That's the comfort God gives to Rachel weeping from the grave. Just as God's promise sustained the nation when Pharaoh attacked and when the Assyrians attacked and when the Babylonians attacked, so it is now when Herod attacks. See, the whole Bible is really the story of the warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you see that warfare breaking out here in Matthew chapter 2. Satan's always been out to destroy the seed of the woman. You have these attacks again and again on the seed of the woman, and again and again, God will protect that seed and preserve that seed. Satan is always at war with God's people, and God is always thwarting Satan's plans and fulfilling his own. It's true. Rachel's right. There is a time to weep, a time to let the tears flow because of the horrific events of the world around us. We must not desensitize us to the great tragedies that so often afflict the human race, the horrific suffering and injustice. Yes, there are times when the tears need to flow, a time to weep, especially when the evils we see in the world around us involve inflicting horrific suffering on innocent children, whether it's through abuse or neglect or cruelty. Or the kind of open infanticide that we see happen again and again in the Bible, including here in Matthew 2. Or in our own day, the great tragedy of abortion. So often it is children who have to suffer the greatest effects of adult evil. And that ought not to be. We ought to do something about that whenever we can. But even as we grieve these horrible injustices, we should not give up hope. Because God's promise and God's plan of salvation cannot be stopped. There is a time to weep over oppression and injustice and abuse and cruelty and murder. But that weeping should always be bounded by times of rejoicing that God has given to us through His gospel. The joy and the comfort and the security that comes through the gospel, what Jesus came to do. The gospel is invincible. The gospel cannot be conquered, rather it will conquer all. It will triumph. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, Pray for us, brothers, that the word of the Lord, that is the gospel, may run swiftly and be glorified. Another translation reads it this way, May the gospel run its course with speed and so be triumphantly celebrated. Paul says pray that when it comes to the gospel, it would be full speed ahead and the gospel would be extolled and magnified and honored in all the earth. Paul had utter and complete confidence in the gospel. Paul had seen all kinds of injustice and oppression and suffering. He endured a great deal of it himself. But Paul was absolutely certain that the gospel would win. That the light of the gospel would overcome the darkness of the world. Paul had utter confidence that the gospel can take on all rivals, all competitors, all other religions and worldviews and philosophies and ideologies and trample them down. The Herods of this world may rage. The Herods of this world may still rage. They may still lash out in anger. They may wage a proxy war. They can't get to Jesus. That's who they really hate. Is Jesus. They can't get to Jesus because he's in heaven. So they may wage a proxy war by attacking us as his disciples instead. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got a target on your back. The Herods of the world are after you. They're out to get you. But it does not matter. Come what may, Jesus and his gospel will try. The Herods of this world may try to stop the gospel, but they will fail. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. No Herod-like ruler can ever stand for long. Their days are always numbered. In fact, it's really, really interesting. This particular Herod seems to have died within days of decreeing death to the babies the death And It's like this was his last act, and then he dies. It happens very shortly after. See, this is the reality you need to know. The church may feel vulnerable, It may feel like the church is vulnerable. It may seem like there are times when the church is really, really vulnerable. But we never are. We are never vulnerable because Christ is with us. We're not the vulnerable ones. The Herod's of the world are actually the vulnerable ones. Baby Jesus looked really vulnerable when powerful and mighty Herod issued his death decree. But it was Herod who died days later, not Jesus. Jesus would die when the time came, but not now. That time is not now, not yet. As the disciples of Jesus, as his body, as his bride, we have nothing to fear. No reason to fear the parents of the world and their murderous decree. No reason to fear. And we have every reason to hope. And indeed, Matthew wraps up this story, this chapter, with a final episode that underlines and underscores and highlights this hope and again foreshadows what is to come. Through a series of, of circumstances I won't we'll give you all the details here, but through a series of circumstances, Joseph ends up taking his family to live in Nazareth. They go from Bethlehem down to Egypt. They come back and go to live in Nazareth and somewhere in there they go to the temple uh, as well for Jesus' dedication on the 40th day. What's interesting is when they go to settle in Nazareth this is the settlement the fourth and final episode. Matthew sees this too as a fulfillment of prophecy only this time he doesn't cite a specific prophet like what he's been doing. He says Micah says this Jeremiah said that. No this time he just says the prophets said he would be called a Nazarene well the problem with that is there is no prophet that actually says that You can search the Old Testament, pour over it. You're not going to find any prophet that says that specifically. So obviously Matthew has engaged in some deep exegesis, which means we have to as well. Matthew's done some creative exegesis of the Old Testament. We've got to do so as well. The most likely solution is to see the word Nazarene as a pun. It's very close to the word Nazarite. The Nazarite vow is described in Numbers chapter 6. You probably have heard of the Nazarites, if you've read your Bible. Uh, a Nazarite was a man who became a holy warrior on a special mission from God. And there are several men who are lifetime Nazarites in the Scripture. Samuel's a lifetime Nazarite. Samson's a lifetime Nazarite. John the Baptist is a Nazarite. These are examples of Nazarite holy warriors who have a special mission God. Now, Jesus is not a literal Nazirite. He doesn't live under that now where you don't cut your hair and you don't drink wine. By the end of his life, he will take a Nazirite now as he goes to the cross. But even though he's not a literal lifetime Nazirite, he does fulfill the Nazirite theme. He is God's holy one. He is God's holy warrior, a man on a mission. On a mission to wreck Satan's kingdom and establish his own. A mission to wage war against the herods of the world, to topple their kingdoms and set up his own. He's on a mission of salvation, to bring the forgiveness of sins to his people, to bring life, peace, and joy, and love into the world. He's a Nazarite holy warrior on a mission.
1: But there's another pun
0: at work here too. The word Nazarene is also closely related to the Hebrew word for branch, which is Nazir. And it's interesting. There are a lot of Old Testament texts that describe the coming Messiah as a branch. Isaiah 11 is probably the most famous. It describes the Messiah as a branch who will grow out of the roots of David's family tree. It's like David's family tree has been cut down. And there's just a stump left. But Isaiah promises, even though judgment has fallen on the house of David, even though the tree has been felled, there is still life in the roots. And a branch grows out of those fruits. That branch is the Messiah, the one who will revive the kingdom of David. Jeremiah 23 says, it's God speaking, God says, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a righteous Nazir, and he shall reign as king. Again and again and again, the coming Messiah is called so there you have it. Who is Jesus? He is the Nazarite holy warrior and the Nazir, the branch growing out of David's family tree. He's the Nazarite holy warrior, a man on a mission, and he is the branch growing out of David's, David's tree, the promised that king. Now what does all this mean for us? When you take all of this in Matthew 2 together, what does it mean? What we see here, God sovereignly orchestrating history Beautifully to fulfill the things He promised and foreshadowed in the prophets. The Bible's one big story from beginning to end. It all fits together coherently and beautifully. When you understand it right, as you move from the very first page to the very last page, it's just one big story. And here you see how the things God promised, He's bringing them to pass because He is the sovereign author of history. And so even in the chaotic and turbulent events of Matthew chapter 2, God is in charge, bringing his word to fulfillment. Bringing everything to pass exactly according to plan. Further, we see here, we really have a, a picture of who the Messiah is. The global mission of the Messiah to save sinners through his death is clearly prefigured here as the Magi bring him gifts and as Herod makes his attack on the child. We see what Jesus came to do. His mission is to die when the time is right. And his mission is to include the Gentiles in his kingdom, the Magi, to bring their gifts, their treasures, the treasures of the nations in. See, for us, Matthew 2 really is unabit. Kind of, A revelation of the glory of Jesus. A manifestation of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Everything you need to know about Jesus is right here in this chapter in seed form. It is all there. Everything you need to know. The seeds planted here in this chapter will grow over the course of Matthew's gospel. They'll come to fruition. But it's all right here. Everything you need to know about Jesus. Jesus is the promised King who has come to restore and glorify God's creation. He will weave all of our faithful labors into the fabric of His final consummated new creation. Jesus came to make your life count for eternity to establish the work of your hands forever. And so whatever your work is, whether it's digging gold out of a mine... Or doing accounting, or raising children, whatever your life's work is, Jesus came to make it count forever, to establish the works of your hands, and to incorporate your labors, your life labors done for Him, into the eternal form of His kingdom. He came to bear the evil and injustice of the world, to face it squarely, to endure the worst that the world could throw at Him, and then to defeat. He came to face the Herods of the world, to look injustice straight in the eye, evil and oppression, to endure them himself so he can overthrow them and bring in a kingdom of peace and justice, a reign of truth and grace and life and righteousness. He came to forgive sinners by becoming a sacrifice, uniting himself to us so we could share in all his blessings and treasures the way a bride shares in all that is her husband's. He came to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets. He came to recapitulate the story of Israel, bringing it to a triumphant conclusion. He came to be the branch, the promised Davidic king. He came to be the Nazarite holy warrior, the ultimate Nazarite who fulfills the mission God has given to him, who means the great victory of sin, Satan. We are swept up into all of this. Jesus does nothing for Himself. He did all of this for us. And why does He do this for you? So that you would trust Him. So that you would love Him. So that you would serve Him. So you would rest in Him. So you would obey Him. So you would bring your gifts to Him. Jesus gives you all He has